We brought HR in way later than you'd think a company of our size. And I'd say, and get ahead of some of those things. Those are going to be necessary. Don't save any of this um, elevated positions that it takes to run a legit company too long. And it's hard to tell somebody who's trying to make payroll that they need more overhead. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. I'm thrilled to be joined by Jim Tor, founder and CEO of CI Design Inc., a leading branding and design agency based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Jim has charted an amazing entrepreneurial journey, starting his business at just 25 years old. Raised in rural Wisconsin, Jim followed his creative passions for art, music, and design, attending college in Arizona before moving back home to launch CI Design. In the early scrappy days, Jim weathered mistakes and hard lessons from hiring to underestimating the business side of, well, running a business. Over the years, Jim embraced industry shifts from print to digital, and he's even prepared to guide brands through the rise of AI. CI Design now employs over 40 people and recently celebrated 30 years in business. Jim stresses the importance of purposeful evolution, surrounding yourself with the right people, learning from failures, and caring deeply about company culture. His story shows that entrepreneurial success calls for equal parts passion, hustle, vision, and humanity. I'm really, really excited about our guest today. We were introduced by a mutual friend or somebody that's uh, actually part of our guest's organization. And when I first connected with you, I looked you up on LinkedIn beforehand, and I'm like, this guy looks like a rock star. And then we get on a Zoom just to do some intros. I'm like, this guy is a rock star. He's got guitars hanging in the back. And anyway, Jim, I'm so glad uh, that you're here. You're joining us today from Phoenix, and you bounce back and forth between Phoenix and Milwaukee. Milwaukee is home, but what's the Phoenix connection? We'll probably get into this a bit because it's got part of the origin story that I went to school at Arizona State and took my first job and got married and started a life adulting out here in Phoenix. I was raised in the Midwest at a certain point, found myself with my starting a company back there. This that I sit here in Phoenix today is there's still a huge and strong pull of this being sort of a bit of home in the heart. My wife's uh, family, a good many of them are out here and more came, migrated over the years. So we've had an opportunity and just really two, three years ago said, let's just dedicate that this is a rhythm of our life. One piece is that I, I work a ton and I don't take a lot of vacation. This change of location, if not vacation, this change of location does does a great thing for me. So I we're back and forth about a third of the year out in Phoenix, always nice in the winter months. And there's some clients on this side of the country. There's a client here in Tempe, Arizona. We'd really like to see our footprint increase out here as well for the business. So it works on both levels. It's just been really, really nice rhythm of life to switch back and forth. That's great. My wife's family has a property up in New England, and we go up there for a little bit in the summers. And so while you're escaping the Midwest winter, we escape the Texas summer for a little bit and get up to New England. So totally appreciate that. As we were getting to know each other, your childhood seemed pretty idyllic. Let's talk about growing up in the Midwest. Yeah, 
Thanks. And I've had such a great time getting to know you, Scott. That part of the story I remember just a few weeks ago telling you about, I love to share that piece because I reflect on it a lot that in business, I talk a lot um, with my teams and as part of our brand operation too, about how somebody's naturally wired. If we could spend most of our time in our natural wiring, well, then life's easy. Work can be a little easier. We learn things along the way and those are the nurtured. But to your question, the things I did in my youth are so many of the things that I do today. And it's not all perfect and idyllic uh, the way you said it um, anymore. But yeah, it was a pretty great upbringing. I was sort of an only child, though had five brothers and sisters. So let me explain the distance between myself and the other brothers and sisters is like five years either direction. I sort of had mom to myself um, as a young guy at home. You know, the big kids were away. And then I had the big family Christmases and things like that and my place in that as well. Kind of the best of both worlds. But I think in that independent sort of, you know, as I got a little older and, and I could be on my bicycle from eight in the morning till eight at night, nobody missed me. Nobody was worried if I was going to be stolen. I was in the rural um, Wisconsin. And the things I love to do then are still the things I love now. I took this early fascination to uh, cars and bikes, anything with wheels on it, anything that went fast. In those hours, home alone, I almost always had a pencil or a magic marker in my hand and was drawing, just a natural tendency to get pencil to paper. And I was a just a music head from day one, wherever it it came into me. I don't know. I had a rock infection from about five years old. I think some of it was the brother and sister's album collections that they left me home with. I would play the Cars and Van Halen and older things as well, Beatles. I just couldn't listen, draw, or ride my bike enough. And I just rinse and repeat in the rural area of Wisconsin, we carve these trails. Now, there's a bunch of boys in the neighborhood like boys to girls outnumbered. We all had BMX bikes and with this network of trails. And so it could be very social and be gone. Like I said, 12, 14 hours a day doing something. And that was really neat. I think it was wholesome until it wasn't wholesome, Scott. <laughs> and we touched on this a little bit. So my friends, we were all the younger brother of somebody as we'd go in the, you know, this is late seventies into eighties as we'd, um, ravage these bike trails and show up at the next person's house. I think a lot of times we were ending up to see the older brothers, you know, drinking, maybe growing something in the back corner of the garden that mom and dad didn't know about. They were working on hot rods. They were cranking loud music and they, were, and they had girlfriends over and we were just like big eyed about, whoa, this is something we, we uh, wanted to be. <laughs> wanted to idolize some of those older brothers and stuff. And so uh, for myself, found myself doing some things much older than say a 12-year-old should be doing or that you'd expect. And so there was kind of a loss of innocence from that ad idyllic piece to loss of innocence pretty quick. And so each of those things, like I, like I said, kind of came with me, you know, the, the fascination with cars and bicycles uh, turned into driving things fast and reckless wanting to be in bands and some nightlife and lifestyle things that went with that. 
So we thought it was great, right? But there's some wild stories in there that you know, I don't want to glorify either. This is uh, some trappings that you know we have to be careful of um, with you know ideas of like it could be the start of addiction and some other other things like that. So I feel like I escaped some of those, um, but I, I put myself in peril a number of times. I think with what started there. You mentioned driving fast. Did you did you have any accidents as a as a teenager? Oh yeah, yeah. There was you know a couple instances. I mean, besides the three um, sixties and things we wanted, they were instigating. There was a night that involved you know icy road and uh, sort of flying off the edge of a T intersection. Okay, we missed the stop entirely. Ended up in a farm field. You know, part of that story is miracle that we basically beat up this car so bad, nearly rolled it. And still nearly wasn't found out. Now, how does that happen? Uh, The car was in pretty bad shape. We had a farmer pull us out at midnight, um, return the car back to a place at that friend's house that it wasn't, the damage wasn't noticed for a number of days. And by that time, uh, some work had been done on the car (laughs) and some alibis were created. Um, It's pretty wild stuff, Scott, but it is origin story stuff. I was, you know, now that, independent little guy at home is now rebel kind of out on my own you know mentally from the family i am now working at the record store as that guy that i always wanted to be you know get the new albums on tuesday we would create the displays for the new the new album in the window in that and so there's like this kind of um position that that i set my sights on it and, and went and got that um, it was really interesting, the career that I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about and brand and communication and, and things that I do now I had some origin in, in that. And more than the record store displays was that the bands would come in. There was a recording studio down the street. I like a lot of different genres of music, but some of these guys were doing sort of the hair metal band scene and um, would stop in. I ended up being the guy that did the logos. I do logos, posters, album covers, and I did it because I liked it. It was a way to hang out with the cool guys. I sat in a lot of rehearsals. That was one of the perks of getting to know these people is I was trying to be a good guitarist and I'd watch them and see their thing. But I was the guy that was doing the logo for the front of the the drum kit, or in in one case, the album cover as these. And I didn't know this was a career. It's just what I was doing at the time. And you're doing that for free, I take it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think there was trades, you know, probably for guitar lessons and beer, something like that. But, you know, Scott, we talked about what would happen next is that that does actually resemble um, my career start in doing logos and brand and branding and all of that vocabulary for companies. The bridge was to end up in the career. If, if someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, my answer was a dentist. <laughs> and you say why um well my dad was a dentist and i thought hey uh six of us we got to take a vacation a year we weren't say wealthy but i could tell that he was taking good care of us and and one day i'll have a family i'd like to take care of them i do what my dad did and yet i had this natural kind of wiring for art and other things that i'd learned about myself later and it wasn't until junior year high school that a career day brought a young man wearing a skinny tie, probably looked like he walked off the back of the car's first album cover. So, oh, this guy looks cool. 
And he opened up this black leather portfolio. Like, wasn't in my vocabulary yet. I don't know what a portfolio is. So I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning about these different careers. And, and in this portfolio, he shows work for uh, a music festival. There's the music tie-in again. But all this other neat corporate stuff, colors, fonts, all the things I really don't know that much about. But I was hand-lettering these posters for bands and plays and theater at that time. I'm like, wait, okay, what's this called? And I think um, to say just at least it was called graphic design. Okay, there's a, here's the thing. And uh, dude, where did you go to school? So I picked his brain on that. And I'm like, I left there changed that day. I had a roadmap and, and I frankly followed it. Went to the school that he went to uh, local there in Milwaukee for a couple of years. Got my sort of undergrad, what do you want to say, um, prerequisite sort of art classes, um, English and, and these things. But I was really restless. I'm like, I was told there'd be internships. Uh, when does the real design thinking get taught? And they're like, I can just tell the answers were soft. The school, oh, we, we don't have an internship this year. I'm like, oh man, I, I was ready for the next thing. I got into exploring other schools. I don't know what school I can afford, but I'm doing this research. The library, hey, I heard the talking heads went to Rhode Island School of Design. I'll check into that. Well, it's it very expensive, but in a really interesting play of events, I found out that the summer faculty at RISD or some of the teachers that, that taught summers there were the faculty at Arizona State University. So there's the tie. I picked at that uh, program. I made some calls. This is pre-internet dating myself here. You did that when you said the talking heads. Yeah. And the cars. Real quick on that on that note. like So we're talking mid-80s, early mid-80s? Yes. Yeah, so this is like 86. Okay. Yeah. I got a couple of years in, I'm going to make a school switch. And really neat thing is that this Arizona State University program, I kind of explain it to my folks because I was going to have to pay out-of-state tuition, might need their help. And, and they were super supportive with that. But I had auditioned for this thing. They took like 20 kids each year, in-state, out-of-state, wherever, and not only show work that you've done, Okay, but do some assignments for them. I'm like, I'm still in class, I'm doing classwork in Milwaukee and I'm doing double time doing these assignments they gave me. I took it seriously. And know this party background that I that I allude to, you know, some of the rebel stuff that I was doing, that's fine. I always got good grades. I think this was the duplicity of me wanting both. Um, I wanted to be the wild guy and keep my nose clean and get good grades too. So in high school, I was doing that. But, you know, in college now, I've got my own skin in the game and um, taking life seriously. So I went for this program, also doubting, like, I don't know. I don't know how to compare myself to others. It was really great to get the call one day that I'm in. I'm going across the Mississippi for the first time in my life and moving to a different part of the country, just, you know, different climate. It really was exciting. That's what brought me out here that first time. I want to go back just a minute. You talked about this guy shows up like he came off the the set of the the cars photo shoot and he spoke at a career fair and that hour changed the trajectory of your life. Is that a fair statement? Entirely. Absolutely entirely. That's crazy. So you grew up thinking you were going to be a dentist because dad was a dentist and your eyes were opened up to the fact that there's this whole career out there that you didn't even know existed. 
And now plans have completely changed. When you came home from school that day and you said, hey, mom, dad, guess what I want to do? What was their reaction? What a great question to reflect on this that way. There's a whole bit, um, I would say with mom and dad, especially of like, what to do with this kid? I didn't match. (laughs) I didn't match the other five at all. I wasn't trying to not match them. I just was that kid in the family. Okay. Two brothers, three sisters that were just extremely straight laced and doing the academic stuff and doing the, the clubs and stuff. But here I was with the cars, the guitars, the things that I've mentioned. And I thought my dad would be super honored that I want to be a dentist. You know, his advice was don't. I think the field is too crowded right now. That's what he said a year prior to this. It was conflicted me by like, oh, I don't know what else to do. I wanted some people would say, oh, Jim, your book, I can show it most likely to be an artist. I'd reject that. I don't want to be an artist. I don't want to be a starving artist. There was these career or these uh, art fairs that were called starving artists. I'm like, that's the last thing I want. So I had a practicalness about me. I wanted to earn money and not have my outlets for the art. When I came home and told mom and dad, hey, it's a thing. <laughs> it's a career. Super supportive. And whenever the topic came up, you know, again, then, hey, how about this? How about I move to another school across the country? Same reaction. Wonderful. If that's what you want to do. I mean, really full support. And I think they knew. I mean, if you looked up, like, what does an accountant make? What is a, at the time, I set my sights on being a graphic designer, not founder, CEO, executive, creative director, these titles that I have now. I'd make half of of any of the brother or sister by any uh, listing of salary range in that. And they're like, yes, do that. Not a lot more needed to be convinced. And I had their full support. That was really wonderful. That's huge. I think a lot of parents, when their kid comes home and says, I want to do a career in the arts, like there's probably a lot of parents that go, you know, that just doesn't seem very practical. And back in the age that you're talking about where you know, today we hear about graphic designers all the time. There's we, we hear about creative agencies all the time. But back then, maybe that wasn't such a thing like it is now. And for the parent that wants their kids to go on and make a lot of money and, and do these things, it's great that they were supportive of you following this dream. But also, man, how cool is it that it's like this calling had been there the whole time. And even your peers saw it in you. You talked about the yearbook and most likely to be an artist. Like it was right there in front of you, but you couldn't see it until somebody came into the picture. Scott, that's so right. Isn't it funny too how we look back even, you know, a year ago, two years ago at different events in our life and go that it was there for a moment. It was ordained. It was waiting to happen. And so this is that exactly that. And for those uh, the parents, you know, who I was you know, I'm spelling it out. I was tough. I was a tough kid and, and how to relate to me, how to, you know, wonder if I was going to mount to anything in, in some regard to just, you know, really, no, that sounds really good. Maybe they just wanted me out of the house. <laughs> um, but that meeting with him that day, it was that. And I would say the same of this choice for the program at the time, Arizona State University. Unbelievable. This faculty that I was uh, mentioning were Basel School of Design trained. They went to Switzerland. They got the real um, foundational methodology of how to critically think through design problems, mostly visual, 
but it's a discipline that you invite into your life as a designer about how to critically look at problems and solutions. And so I had no idea what I was about to be a student of to really learn. So both one led to the next, right? One critical meeting to the next decision. Um, this schooling was absolutely pivotal for me, you know, just um, how it trained the brain. I don't want to get too far ahead, but you started your business at age 25 and we'll, we'll get into that, but you did a couple of different things before then. And I think that if I remember clearly, there were some changes in technology going on kind of in this time, right as you're getting ready to get out of school. And I think even that kind of pivoted you a little bit and set you up for, for greater success. So kind of talk about like that immediate post-college, what was going on? Yeah. Thanks for remembering from, from our, uh, our first conversation on that. This was really neat. So as we've said, this is 80s transitioning to the nine, you know, 1990, uh, graduated in 90 and the Macintosh was coming on. Uh, the school in the way I, I just talked about it was the tool doesn't matter. It's the idea. And so it was a lot of hand, hand work and we were designing typography and fonts uh, by hand on paper a couple of ways I won't just go into, but like really arduous stuff to do whole character sets, sans and, and serif and, and all these things. But this Macintosh was coming on and, and they basically said, you're invited to use the machine. We're not teaching you how to push the buttons. This uh, junior and senior year, I'm going to be out in the workforce. I'm going to need to know this thing. Out in Arizona, I think it was number one party school in the US at the time. It was much bigger campus than I'd, I'd been on before. I stayed back from any type of spring break, even, you know, friends were driving to Mexico and doing the things. I redid all of my work that I had done by hand into the computer. I taught myself Adobe Illustrator, Adobe Photoshop to name two. And then I think uh, the design gang will laugh in the crowd here of like Quark Express or PageMaker was the layout program. And now it's Adobe InDesign. But this was, and I look back at this, you know, you're saying you're wild, Jim. Yeah, I'm wild. You say discipline. Yeah, I'm disciplined too. This was a wake up at eight in the morning, ride my bike to campus and about eight at night, uh, come back with a couple floppy disks of whatever work I had gotten done and go back again the next day. All to say spring break, spring break, uh, both years were get ahead and were get ahead weeks. So I came out of school with a pretty rock in portfolio. Here's the skills. Here's the skills I've honed. Some are natural. Some you've taught and advanced yourself. That's great. I can do it in any medium and I'm ready for what's next. And that was internships. So now I'm applying for internships. You know, you apply for the school. Great. You know, what made me itchy about Milwaukee is that they didn't have sort of that career path um, for me. And now I'm being presented with opportunities. And, and I think it was that. It was that becoming digital that made me attractive there to the first of two internships, then the second, and the second is the firm in Phoenix that hired me. You said you were attractive to the the firms. Was that because like there weren't just a lot of people that had the technology skill at that point? I don't know, Scott. I would say it was both. You know, they're looking for talent their own way. I tell a quick story, and this is kind of neat that the firm that ultimately took me as that second intern and, and it kept me on, hired me full time. 
they're still my friends out here in Phoenix and I see them. I was to do a two-day-a-week internship Tuesdays and Thursdays. And the project that they had just brought in that they'd tossed me on to and see what I could do on that first Tuesday, okay, warmed up to it. Thursday, it was an annual report. We do annual reports for our clients still these days. And so that's like a you know, 68-page book, if I recall. And the deadline was coming. And the idea that I had this Macintosh kind of command, I said, hey, do you want me to come in on Friday too? Well, sure. Knock out a few more spreads of this book. And Friday came and and the weekend was there. You want me to come in this weekend? Monday, I had it basically waiting for them. So I think it's, you know, whatever tool is going to do it fastest, efficiency is part of this realm that we live in too. And any way you can exhibit a difference, okay, I think is the answer. So whether it was the technology or just your great ideas, hopefully, or a cross of the two was really helpful in those early days. I did not at all mean to diminish the the work ethic and, and the raw talent. Um, not at all. It seemed like technology was such a pivotal thing. Thinking about that annual report, which I think if we're being honest, is probably not like the most fun and exciting work to do. The fact that you got that done in under a week, Tuesday, and you had it ready Monday morning, how long would that have taken you to do it the old school way? Wow. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Any of the, you know, the owners there, the other people, the way that was done by hand in the old days was that the Macintosh brought typography to the regular designer. In the days, you know, right before then, it was that you would take manuscripts and say, I want this set in Gotham 12 point, 18 point leading these columns this wide. And then you would cut that up and paste it on a board. It was, it was wild. I could do both. And sometimes because depends on which client or which printer these pieces were going to, you might do it the old fashioned. There's a privilege actually, I'd say in the the year I got that I graduated because I know uh, the principles of doing it the old school way and and then embrace the modern to answer your question, you know, what the computer did there as my tool in a week, let's say three or four. It's astronomical how much and probably a lot of exacto knife cuts (laughs) that would have gone with the old fashioned way. Trading cuts for a carpal tunnel. (laughs) Yeah. So you were with two different firms, is that right? Before you started CID? Yes. How long were you there and what was that work like for you? Well, that work was amazing. And and when I speak of these friends here at um, Fisher Design in Phoenix, and it's morphed and changed over the years itself, it was absolutely fantastic. The setup there, and this leads into probably the foundation of my business too, was that the owners and creative directors essentially my, my role there. There's two of them. And they had these wonderful connections. They were connectors. They were using the network to go and get these annual report jobs for banks and um, some other, trying to think of a couple of the other industries. They're very high dollar things. They're big companies that need to file this report and use it to do, you know, as a good piece of marketing that they're fancy people <laughs> for a young guy coming out of school. I'm like, how do you get to know the CEO of the public service company in Arizona? And so they're, you know, sure, it might be dinners and golfing or something like this, but this was meaningful. We're moving business with our relationships. 
and those uh, owners would come back and bring me the design assignment and direct it to the degree that they would. So they'd say, you know, here's the goal. And how is the design thinking? How is the um, challenge going to be met? And you, Jim, or the small team that we had, it was such a privilege to be able to work on these things that walked in the door, literally walked in the door and came to my desk. And I got a chance to be this ace sort of um, art director, creative director in the making as each new challenge came in. And some of the more glamorous things that we got to work on was Phoenix Suns, other sports teams, because again, these relationships that they had were followed their interests. I was cars and guitars guy. These were downright sports wired guys. So there's a lot of neat work that was coming in the door and I'm working on logos for big brands. And, and so there's the really exciting kind of consumery side of things that I was doing and a little bit more of the B2B. I like both. Both are problem solving opportunities. In the four years then with them, each next year, more awards, more fun, more experience, building this thing with them. All of a sudden, there was this sort of missing ingredient for me. And I'm like, what, what is that? You're being fulfilled. You're doing the things. And it turns out that the missing piece for me was really the seat at the table they had. Now, I didn't have their network, but I love the idea that when the opportunity was expressed, client to agency, that they were in the short drive back to the office. What they formed and brought to my desk was something fun to work on, but there was a lot. There was a lot of business being talked about, a lot of objectives at the table with the client. And it turned out that, you know, while I loved what I was doing, there was this vacuum of, I would like a seat at that table. I think that design doesn't start when the mouse starts clicking when the pencil has done the sketch, design starts taking place at the conversation. This is something that it was so funny in um, basically with that awareness, Scott was an awakening in me was like a 60 days uh, kind of turnaround. I didn't know what the void was. I identified the void and I was uh, packing up a U-Haul trailer with my wife to move across the country. There's a lot of other steps in there and we might unpack some of those. But like when I saw that this road for me in that particular firm at that time was going to cul-de-sac, okay? I wasn't going to be able to sort of go down that road I just talked about. I went and tried something else. Something you said in there just, man, it hit me hard because I can totally relate. You talked about there was this void and you came to figure out that it was that you wanted to a seat at the table. I might phrase mine just a little bit different, but I can distinctly remember coming home from a trip <clears throat> to LA where I'd been on a, a client project. I traveled out to LA 26 times in 2013. And I came home from this one trip and I said to my wife, Hey, I think I want to go start my own company. And she said, you want to do what? She said, you've been promoted four times in three years. You're making the best money you've ever made. You've had got great benefits. You've got like, why do you want to go do this? And I've always wanted to start my own business, but kind of what you said there, like there was something missing and you realized it. And I had a very, very similar moment there too. So a question I, I got to ask, you're still very young. You're married very young and 
you tell your wife, hey, I want to pack up the car and go start my own business. I want to go hang a shingle in another part of the country that you've not, you know, really lived in. What was her reaction? By you asking the question, it, it dawns on me very similar to the support from the parents. She just was all in for this is what you need to do. I'm there for you. I think it had been talked about a bit. New wife and uh, new hopes and aspirations. A move wasn't in the cards, but here we were at that year, 93, had begun to look at houses. What comes next? Kids. And the idea of, I think there was a window that we both agreed, if we're going to do this, let's do it now. Because otherwise, now we're going to be even more connected with a mortgage and setting our roots down. Before those roots really, really, truly go deep, why don't we just do this? So, you know, I remember her dad helping us pack uh, the U-Haul in a moment where I was like, this is for real. I'm taking his daughter now across the country. But support everywhere. And it happened. You look back and you're like, wow. I mean, it could only have probably that window was very short for the yes to remain a yes <laughs> and people not to second guess what we were up to. To not only have your wife's support, but her parents' support as well. That's huge. I've probably said this before at some point with another guest, but I think about it. There's no good time in life to start a business. In your 20s, and not to take anything away from you, I'm thinking more about myself. You don't know anything. And so, like, what business do you have starting a business in your 20s? And in your 30s, you're just getting your career going. You're probably starting to make a little bit of money. You've got a little bit of a foundation. You've probably started to have kids or you're about to have kids. And in your 40s, you know, you're thinking about putting kids through college. And, and then you get in your 50s and it's too late. And there's never a good time in life to start a business. And I love that you just said, we're doing it. Let's go. Yeah. And you point to a number of things. It sounds like we both experienced, you know, you certainly don't know what you don't know at that time because you just don't have enough business experience to know. And so you're wide-eyed enough to go try this thing. And I think a good many people that are going to start something are going to start it young and dumb and early. Um, it might not be the case for everybody, but it was for you and me. And so, Scott, I made grave and many mistakes in that naivety that first year, like so many so that I had my hand on the phone back to Fisher here in Phoenix more than once. And I think, you know, I'll describe a few in setting up the company quickly and a few people that were the origin of, of CI Design with me. Someone's got to do biz dev and the design. Well, like I explained, the work was coming in the door. Jim, had you thought this through? And the answer, I got to be honest. Now I think about it all the time and I, um, <laughs> no, no, I didn't. In fact, the network that was in Phoenix, I'm moving back to a town I haven't been in for seven years. And last I left, I was a wild rebel. Like, where are you going to, and it, it came pretty quick. I put out a self-promotion little um, brochure and mailed it to 15 places. And I think I got five <laughs> clients. It could ever have that kind of rate of return again. That's a heck of a response rate. It's incredible. I'd kill for a 33% uh, I know. <laughs> response rate. What I did is show some pieces of my portfolio in a couple different industries, and it was sports, sports medicine, financial, and some real estate. I can picture the piece so I can recall this quickly. And yeah, I got a taker on one of each in that first year. 
that wouldn't pay the bills. I'm telling you. And that again, the time spent to go to nurture that work, shape it, bring it in. Next mistake. I didn't know what to charge for this stuff, Scott. So I'm putting too low a price tag on some, maybe too, I don't know, but I'm bringing some work in, I'm designing it and there's some success. And this is not overnight, like anyone will tell you, right? But there's some success and it's coming. Okay, now we need to hire some more people. And I'll tell you what, one of the first hires that I made was a person who brought in the portfolio. It was clearly, it was clear a month later that that portfolio was not hers. It was some kind of borrowed, I don't know, um, because she couldn't perform those things that she showed me. And so I've made a mistake on who's going to do the biz dev, who's going to do the work. Now I've got to go back to the drawing board and figure out this recruiting thing. Next, in the line of mistakes, and this is all within months, okay? I had a big no pay. And this was a home builder who liked the work. I was delivering on the work, paid some of the bills, but not the other bills. Ended up in jail, theft by swindle. This was a serial swindler. Um, That's actually a term that's on the criminal report or whatever. He stung me and a ton of other people, not only for the design work, but the homes that he said he was building. It was crazy. So that pain, and now the cash flow, all this work and to not be paid, Scott. I should have come back with the tail between my legs and asked for my job. But, you know, hey, the next conversation was starting with another client and another client. And one of those happened to be a really nice big name. And one small project turned into full product launches for this industrial manufacturer. And the path is so blessed. I couldn't write the script. It was not without this heartache. You know, like, what have you done, Jim, you know, to jump off the ledge and build the parachute on the way down? But there was provision. And so in these meetings that I had, the opportunities, I started forming truly what is the company now, okay? And it's good work with some dollars and some budgets in a crew that I'm building that, that I can now believe in, that can do the work that they showed. And now we're layering in, you know, you brought up technology. It isn't just your good design sensibilities and layout for print. Now it's you're expected, if you're in this industry, to be a web developer, essentially. So next chapter was the digital realm for the company, not just my jobs. What I foundationally probably got in place, great, but every year's a new challenge. Where do you need to pivot, especially in the agency and marketing world? So I became front row student to that. I like to think, too, that the mistakes came far fewer. But just um, in that experience, now trying to be strategic about the company, not so accidental. Jim wants to start his company and do brand. Okay. Now part of my experience is designing the company. So I had to shift shift those uh, disciplines over literally to work on the company. I definitely want to delve more into that, but I want to go back to some of those, as you described, lessons learned. And let me ask just real quick. How far into the business were you, how many months or years before you made that very first hire? Was that inside the first year or two? Yes, it was in the first year. Yeah. Um, Like first three months. Wow. That elapsed time for me. It's crazy to reflect on this with you because 
I think that that promo that I sent out and some of those discussions, I, that, that was right fast. I knew I couldn't waste time. But literally, by the time I had gotten the second project in, I knew I'm going to need this support. One other thing, your business and my business, they're not all that different. At the end of the day, we're in the professional services business. One of the traps that I found myself in early on was the, okay, I'm spending all my time selling work. And then all of a sudden I get a bunch of work. Now I got to go do a bunch of work and I'm not selling work. And so you can easily get into this vicious cycle. Did hiring people early help you avoid that? Or were there periods where it was lots of selling, not much doing, lots of doing, not much selling. And then all of a sudden, oh gosh, where's, where's that next job going to come from? Yeah. I would say that that still remains. And what you try to do is have enough repeat business that it's not feast and famine, but there's elements of that. I think too, every couple of years, our industry changes. And so what might've seemed um, like a great pipeline and lots of a repeat or each and each project is coming in, that gets disrupted in our industry every couple of years anyway. The idea of keeping work in front of people. It's just taken different forms, but it, it still remains early days. And even, even now, the way I answered it in the early going was just a diversity of portfolio. And I was still a student, you know, really of economics at the time when housing took a complete turn on us, industrial clients, the B2B side was doing okay or was quicker to rebound in that time, vice versa, right? And so there was different things. And so I was not a mastermind of it, but I knew not to have all the eggs in one basket. That is still true, but Scott, in these times, the agency that I am, really now we are, as a goal, are trying to be more specialized than generalist. It's your differentiator to some degree, if you can really nail that focus, a whole makeup of our portfolio, I'm really pleased with it. I, there's nobody that I'm looking to get out of uh, of the client um, roster, but we are um, year over year trying to stay more focused into um, just like, say, three industry sectors. Early days, we might have said eight or ten. That was the way that I was able to, for a small team, keep everyone busy. Now I have to be more strategic about just being excellent, being sought after, being a destination agency to fill pipeline and staying current, like I said, as well. So always a challenge. And um, you think of our role in creative brand and agency work is to bring disruption, frankly, of thinking to our clients. That's how we serve them. Have you thought of it this way? Let's look at, you know, blue ocean stuff over here. Same goes for the blueprint and the building of, of my own company. So uh, that disruption and good team <laughs> to set out being relevant and growing um, is the goal. How do we get there together? You talked a minute ago about being a student of economics and you know, I think back to the earlier part of your story where you said you wanted that seat at the table. And, and I loved what you said about like the design doesn't start when you start clicking the keys. Design starts in that very first conversation. There's a big difference between being a creative 
and being a business person. You clearly had the creative aspect in spades from the time you were very, very little. You had the education in the arts and, and in the creative space. How did you go about learning the business side? All 100% applied trial by fire. I used the word economics, but I didn't take an economics class. I mean, I lots of writing and some science, yes, but uh, writing and then the visual arts. That's what I was nurtured and built into. I started business without taking a business class. You know, that's the marvel of it. And yet we're a student of life, right? I think learning the business was watching those owners at Fisher nail it, just wired for business. So they had a partnership. One was probably creative first, business second. The other was business first. And that was a good thing for them. Either way, I got a, I did get quite an education on how things are done. And though I didn't probably build a, a rule book off of what I saw, I remembered. I remembered the things. I remembered when we were light and they took more meetings. I remembered when things were good and uh, oh, they adjusted some rates, these different things. Now there's books and associations and coaching for all this, and we use all that. But really, Scott, it's a miracle that I just sort of sponged what I could. I'm just not a quitter, right? And we talked a little bit about this. I've now gotten to understand some of those motivations of young Jim and even, even today, Jim, with a lot of personality, coaching, and emotional intelligence things. So to the listeners out there, I'm an Enneagram 3 achiever. Anything I start, I want to finish. <laughs> I want to do it better the next time. I want to ride my mountain bike, which is what I do a great deal of out here, you know, a minute faster uh, than the time before it. And so the same goes then on that business arc is I wanted to do the business and do it well, though that is not my, say, first inspiration to start the business. I do want the business to be amazing. And what will it take to do or hire to do, but set that vision to do business well. And I think we are doing it great, but those in-between years, Scott, wow, you know, just really like I think visually comes to mind is like a fawn standing up for the first time, just a very wobbly legged company in that first year. I don't want anyone to think I nailed it out of the gates. I did not. A minute ago, you talked about, as part of that kind of economics discussion, you talked about how you were in a lot of different industries, and so some rebounded quicker. I'm guessing you were talking about kind of the 08, 09 Great Recession period. You made it through that, and you celebrated 30 years in business, so you made it through COVID. Man, talk to me about what those two just crazy, crazy periods were like for the business and then maybe, you know, fill in the 10 year gap in between and, and kind of what that was like as well. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. And I'll, I'll say predating the 08 crisis as a young man in that um, growing business, 9-11 was a shock. I have some records and spreadsheets dashboard that I can go back to quick and see, you know, where, where was their um, fall off in the trend line that you hope points up and to the right but I remember 9-11 at least being the first time I'm like, I don't know if the business would survive this, would it? You know, a couple weeks, months, you're like, oh, no, it's, it's going to survive it, but it'll be a challenge. And your hiring plan isn't going to happen. Your growth plan isn't going to happen, whatever it is. So 9-11 was a warm up for a young guy that wasn't ready to stomach anything more than its impact, but personally to me. 
but a warm up. Oh, eight was um, wild. This was the phone stops ringing, except for the clients that want to taper, cancel what they're doing with you. You know, if they're in the, you know, near industry banking or real estate, you know, that's one thing, but everyone's scared. So the cancellations are coming and, you know, on the arc of how many heads of employees do I have at that time? You know, oh, eight, you know, fair amount. I think let's go with like 18. And so there's a lot of mouths to feed, a lot of people to be responsible for. And you want to, you know, lead them through it, lead the company through it. It was really rough. I would say what happened after, you know, taking no salary for some months in 08 and in nine, a different sector. We did work for higher ed education schools and um, recruiting and some websites and different tools and things that we'd equip them with. That was kind of a hot time for them. So it's very glad that diversity of the portfolio let us land there in what was a smaller percent by percentage bit of our book of business. They were able to lead the way and begin to you know pay our bills. And then, like you said, the 10-year gap starting with 2010 was this return to back up and to the right kind of uh, chart. In the, the 10 years the, from 09 to 19, doubled in size, okay? So the responsibility to a owner, a leader, for literally twice the amount of people was definitely something to do well. I wanted to do it well, but to be like, there's systems that work for 20 people that don't work for 40 people. You think about the amount of time spent um, to explain or you know inspire all the different things that my roles need me to do and now the chance for misinterpretation or personalities and emotional blockers to get in the way, they're all there. Up and to the right doesn't look like happy-go-lucky and profit. In fact, it was so satisfying, okay, first I want to say, that I love my team and I love the culture that we've built. But if somebody would have told me you're going to spend as much time on how people feel at work as you ever did about just creating great work, that would have been something that I would have loved to have, have, have understood earlier. Nonetheless, like I said, it, it is all design thinking. So designing systems where everyone can be heard, that their voice in, again, back to the personality piece, it may come off a way, but their care and intentionality is just, you have to separate the delivery and the sort of the intent and and these things. So we really went the 10 years to work inward and outward. And that bottom line, I would say, has fluctuated. That if it was me being that business first owner, that profile, it'd be a real different company because you know you'd measure just that. You'd measure just the numbers. And what we measured was health of the team. Now I can tell you that it was it's a wavy line on the profit side, because what we held dear is that this is a home for people to be liberated in doing the work that they love to do. Now, is this a writer or a designer or a filmmaker or a web developer, these things? And so we take great pride in that. It was a long, it was those 10 years. But I want to come back to your question. And, and COVID hits the 09, I say 09 is when we started pulling out of the 08 crisis. COVID gave me that blueprint. Ah, I remember this. Didn't want to remember it. I knew 
a couple quick things to do. Not panic. The phone has stopped except for the cancellations. Okay. Yes, I've been here before. The stakes are higher, right, Scott? I've got double, but keep a good leadership mindset. They're going to need to know, are we okay? And the folks inside, there's going to need to be more prospecting and quick. I've been in that seat. We've described some of that today. So hope that I had some rest in the 10 years because it is going to be called on you now, Jim, to everything you were doing and then some to bring work in the door and to lead when there isn't a lot. And so it's very raw. It's still there. But that rebound started inside of 2020. I know that both um, both years of 08 and uh, 2020, I think we broke even. Well, that's incredible. If anyone told me it's going to be bad, Jim, but it's not going to be that bad. You're going to come out at a, at a break even. Wow, that would be a relief. But you don't know it and you fight for it and the fighting got us there. <laughs> so there's that. We live in a little strange time. I th- everyone would agree that to that, right? The recent arc of 20 till 2020 until now, we now know um, resembles a lot of agencies. We're part of an uh, agency management institute. I'm really grateful for those guys who can tell us what other agencies are experiencing. And we're not alone in what I'm about to say is that the reaction after COVID was that we all had a really good 2021. That felt great. What do you remember of 2021 for a lot of us was it was the year deemed the year of the great resignation. So our talent was being poached for some exorbitant dollars off to the coast. We can all work from home now. That was happening. And so we experienced some of that. Um, We fought for our people and had more turnover than we had ever experienced because culture is so high with us. But 2021 on the profit scale was okay. We had this new problem to deal with with regard to staffing. And so that normalized. And where does it leave us 22 and 23? It was a plateauing, a softening that uh, that burst that we all felt in 21. It's not there. We have to examine how we're doing things to delight our clients differently, sometimes with less budgets. We do need to continue to pump our pipeline full of new and good work. So these couple years and into 24 have been a lot of that. And we do it with excitement. Um, we've got some really neat things in, but it's a hard work time for us again, to be sure. On that up and to the right, sure, I think we can still claim that, but it is, uh, we're pedaling that bike very, very hard and fast and akin to that former time. So hopefully that pattern resets and we're into some blue sky again real soon. I kind of trust that that's the case. Years ago, somebody had warned me that growth will impact profitability. I think it's the book Crossing the Chasm. It talks about these different points where you're going to have to make investments in additional layers of management, and you're going to have to make investments in systems and things like that. And in doing so, again, that's going to hurt the bottom line. But as you level up, that pain on the bottom line kind of softens. Does that resonate at all? You kind of talked about that wavy line. Does that idea of like periods of growth, lower profitability, but it kind of catches up down the road? Have you experienced that? Yeah, 100%. Again, back to the wavy line is because you make the investment so that 
I can think of um, the way that we, you know, project manage and have some roles in there that are not the, you know, the end piece of the product. It's the middle piece. It's how does things get done and and management, uh, just even from the CFO seat or operationally running the company, there's roles in there, leaders, uh, head of a department instead of the doer, right? So we have those roles. And the wavy line is that you invest in that so that those others can be optimized and then the wave goes up and then you need to reach a new stability. One of my CEO leadership sort of vision decks that I do every fall to set vision for the next year to my executive team in recent times was a very boring word to me, but it was a a very mature thing to do at the time. And it was just stabilization. It was, you know, the years before and after have been much more inspirational, but in the transition of the up curve or or the uh, sort of flattening out, you're just trying to bolster systems, pricing strategies, AGI, by employee, all these things that I've become a student of. And my team is really working on the business of the business. And we just expect that just like these 30 years before us, we'll do the next right thing. But this is a time, certainly, that we're frankly right now, and I can say it honestly, invigorated by the change. We're going to do things a little bit different, and we're feeling those out. And there's a whole world of um, things that we want to embrace and be on the forefront of just in the delivery of what we do. We do very human things in brand and marketing and brand experiences for the companies that we lead and then their consumers, right? What of of the artificial intelligence? How are we going to lead them? How do we use it? How do we teach them? How do we go first? So there's a lot of brave new world stuff up ahead for us to be in. And so that's all exhilarating too. Everything's moving right now, I would say. And I don't expect it to stop. The, the vision that I kind of mentioned before is to bring focus, bring focus for everybody that works at CID and for our customers. They know what they're getting from us, clear direction. We say that we're a brand forward agency. We're moving brands forward. We take the position, that posture, that forward. And so whatever it is going to be to do that for them applies to us too. So how will CI Design enter its next 15 years is very much on our mind. Uh, thinking of the 30 as two 15s. What's the next 15 going to look like? And we're in those, those talks. You use one of my absolute favorite words. And in fact, when I think about my job today and how it's evolved over the years, the two parts of my job today that I enjoy the most are our brand and our culture. And the way that I think about it, our brand is the outward expression of our culture. How would you describe your culture today? And then also you said something about tracking the health of your team, the health of your your employees. I'd love to know more, like, how did you do that? If somebody wanted to put a program in place to track that, how would you do it? So describe your culture. How are you tracking employee health? Awesome. Our culture, I would say, I try to not be abstract, but I'll warm up with some abstract terms. It's is very warm. It's very good. It is very expressive and takes people for who and, and what they bring. Okay. So a little soft in my warm up here. How do we get there? That sounds warm and fuzzy, right? And that isn't exactly the goal either. How do we get here? About 
I think eight years ago, it was an invested amount of time. I noticed I was having not as easy of a time to align and inspire people in the projects. Maybe how they related to each other too, but the projects is the raw material where we get to collaborate. And I would present to them, I say it this way, because I probably came back as biz dev guy with an opportunity and I'd huddle up a faction of the team and I'd say, okay, here's our opportunity and and I'm excited about it. And I'd stand in front of them in a, in a room and I'd have somebody yawn and somebody doodling and somebody watching but glazed over. I'd be like, this isn't me and this isn't what I'm used to experiencing. What's the deal here? And I was frustrated enough. And, and I want to say too, that I always turn the microscope on myself. I'm like, what am I doing wrong? I'm really leading by example, aren't I? This is an exciting opportunity. I see myself in it. Can you see yourselves in it too? And I just was <laughs> getting tired of what I'm describing here being not very fulfilling for me and, and didn't feel like I had even affected these internal people in 45-minute in meeting. So I asked for some help and it came in the form of a consultant that says, what's it like to be on the other side of you, Jen? I don't know. Help me figure that out. And they said, oh, it's not just you. Do you know the makeup of the team that you just described sitting around that table that, that seemed glazed over? And I'm like, yes and no. I know what I usually get out of this person, know what I usually get out of that person. I'm running laps to, to perform at that table for each individual person. Can I just be me? And they said, we can help you. And so what started with a simple sort of Myers-Briggs personality assessment for the team then decoded that for us in a much simpler way where you don't have to be a, a psychologist and showed to each person's natural wiring how they present. Are they introverted, extroverted? Do they see risk first or opportunity for all these different things? And we became just super aware of who the person to the right of us was. And it taught me so much about myself that I was able to, first up, set better rules and goals for meetings. Because I would sound like excitable boy. It seems like Jim's really got this idea handled. Oh, no, I'm asking for your help in this communication to be clear. It was what I needed to learn. Be deliberate and set goals and things. For other people, it could be something else. So this consulting taught us about the voices, the voices that we can honor in each other and, and what to expect from each other. And it was like a light bulb went on for, for each of us. And it became then part of our onboarding process. Everyone took their assessment, sure. But then we do small department groupings. We've had a number of times, three or four, I can remember, where there would be a rub between two employees. And we, we'd say, what's going on here? And just certainly assess the situation. But where um, culture said, this isn't an so much an HR problem. It's an opportunity. Let's talk. How does this make you feel when, when this happens? And that consultant actually, to say, sort of mediates those discussions. It would be okay if it even happened more, frankly, that really restore people to health. But it's this really knowing how we're wired. I'll give you one more example or kind of anecdote about this is that by nature, I'm an ENFP. And so I am very future-oriented. I speak in very provisional terms, but I can be and held to and, ex and, and you would expect your leader to also 
know when to promise, have promise, sorry, terms. So in between promise and, and a provisional state is a planning state. There's three P's in there. You're working um, first inspired and provisionally, this is what could happen in the future. And people would hear that voice and go, so that's what we're doing? We're doing that? What Jim just said in the future? And, oh, hold up a second. I'm just dreaming. Can you allow me to dream for a second out loud with you, bring you along on my journey? Oh, okay. We'll try. So half of the people at the office might resemble me. Half would be the other ways. Like, okay, do you want me to do that right now? And I'm like, oh, okay, no, this is just the sounding out place. Okay, are we going to advance this to the next stage? Well, that's where my planners. And I, I can plan and I can promise to just know which lane you're in at the time. So this is an example, whichever way you're wired is to just know what discussion we're having at the time. <laughs> and that adds a lot of clarity. I would say if I did any justice to that scenario, this took all the murkiness out of that first experience of that really dead room that I described where I was like, what's going on here? It's literally taken the haze and murkiness out of those situations. And we have very constructive, move the needle kind of meetings. For me, that's great because that's efficient. And now we're running the business and these projects better. But as satisfying to me is that the humans there in the room are more fulfilled realize what's expected of them, know where the chance to individually move their needles in the project are. So this is really exciting to me in that piece of the culture that we gave the supports to so it could shine. I suspect the answer is no, but I'm going to replace the the word dream with vision. Is it hard for you at all to, to share and expose that to the team? And I'm thinking about it through my lens. There are things that I've got rolling around in my head that I have a hard time sharing because I don't want to set an expectation that this thing is going to happen. It's kind of like what you just described where that person in the audience is like, oh, you want me to go do that now? I have a hard time sharing some of those things because I don't want to set an expectation that we're not going to actually meet. Do you struggle at all to share or does it just free flow naturally? Well, a couple different ways. Maybe you can tell, maybe the listeners can tell. I can't stop myself, really. I really know my hands are up and I'm using them. I, I really enjoy communication and I feel it's authentic just because of how I'm wired. If, if I have information, if I have a feeling, I'm going to be pretty transparent and get it out in the open. Sure, we guard some things, right, that are maybe they're just too weird. Okay, I'm not going to say that one, but I'm a creative and so. I want to see what the possible is. I used the word provisional before. It's really just a different way of saying what's possible. So I'd like to birth it out into the universe with my words and probably a small drawing. And that, that is a, a thing I like to couple and, and put it out there and team, let's react to this. It's just not everyone knows what they're reacting to. So is it hard? No, because of this willingness to share and maybe too soon and maybe too often. Maybe that is something that I've been working on. But Scott, for sure, doesn't mean because I sit in the owner seat and the executive creative director seat that I should or it would be beneficial for the team to, to just do that because that's who I am. You really should put some gates in place and go, you know, sleep on that. Take that for a lap around a smaller group before you bring it to the bigger group. 
So there's a lot of refinement in knowing who I am individually and say, I've had some really big ideas. And you'd have to ask yourself, are all the ears in the room mature enough to hear what that is? You'd be careful um, oversharing for something that's only a possibility could really paint a wrong picture for somebody. So these are tools I'm learning, right? You just put in the measures for clarity. You can tell, and I would say, it comes from a place of authenticity. I really desire and crave truth and, and that for people, but do measure how much and how soon. And then we celebrate our planners and our people who can, who can see that vision through. There's some traction stuff in there where there's the visionaries and there's the implementers. A founder has to be both. <laughs> he, she, they have to see what can be and make it so in the early going. Later, bring those around them to be empowered to see through the vision of the, of the founder or the, of their own initiatives. So long way of answering no, it's not hard, but be careful with all its implications. You mentioned a minute ago that you're Myers-Briggs. You're a, a future-thinking kind of person, future-oriented. You've gone from hand-creating fonts to the early days of digital, to web, to social. Now we're doing video in just about everything. We've got blogs. We've got all kinds of things. And now we've got AI, which you touched on a minute ago. What do you think your industry is going to look like over the next five years? It's spending a lot of time on that. And I really believe that we prize ourselves even today as being a consultant. Okay. But we have things, we have wares, you named them, you know, like video, social, things. It used to be print very quite concrete deliverables. I just think more and more we are going to be the sage advice, consultive person at the table. And it may be a little bit less of the, I'll knock on the desktop here, the concrete thing, even if that concrete thing is a website or something virtual, and more how we're guiding that brand is the expression, as you said before, and marketing is the invitation to be that brand. There's a lot there that needs the coaching, the advice to realize where we're at in the how do we help those brands, whether or not we're bringing them a concrete deliverable. I think it's how we're guiding thoughts and process and concepts. And the part of me that feels naively, perhaps, and that's part of. <laughs> part of this story is that the concept while aided by AI it still has origin in the brain or the thinking or the channeling. Let AI bring us options, but discern which ones meet the objective that we came up with. Be open and willing to be surprised that it offered new thoughts that we feed back into our brain. And, and now the AI has shaped our concept. I think this is all really healthy and good. And I feel that having gone from the analog to the digital way back, as we've talked about today, with every new sort of invention, software application, we continue as in our industry to keep showing that the design thinking will win. 
I think there's hard work. We want to stay relevant and we don't want to take that lying down, but how we will affect brands through our normal deliverable will not be what we're doing in a couple of years. And I mean a couple, three to five for sure. So again, I'm ready to embrace the disruption that it is, be excited about it as a new tool, the same way that the Mac was a new tool once and many things in between. But don't be sleepy about it. We really got to be in these discussions, lead these discussions. And that's where I come back to the consultant piece is that I believe that the way that our clients will look to us will be maybe for us to help them set up an AI practice. And that sounds like we're giving a lot away. Yeah. I think that's the thing a leader in a company that leads would do too, is continue to just push it ahead and rest assured we'll have a place at the table, especially if we're leading the discussions. Going back again to that kind of creative versus business and and having the seat at the table, owning the seat at the table today, do you enjoy one side more than the other now? Has that changed over time? It's something I guess to say, Scott, I have the privilege of flipping back and forth. I will really relish a day where I am in the brand workshops that we lead with, you mentioned earlier, my colleague, Greg Marshall. So it's just such a privilege to be birthing new experiences for brands to really inspire and align people who've never been aligned before in a workshop process. That's thrilling to me to literally jump in. And I was working in Photoshop and and Illustrator this week, a couple different projects where I could go to that. But then I flip entirely to the untethered from the mechanics of how things get done that way. And having the biz dev conversations and leading my executive team on this vision stuff, it's like one recharges the battery for the other. And my team has asked me a number of times, and even in care for me, at one point we said I had eight hats. We called it Mad Hatter. And we're a little bit granular, eight. I can't list them right now because we, we did beat that to three. I wake up each morning basically in what looks like, let's call it the Mercedes-Benz symbol or a peace sign, okay? A pie chart of three equal thirds. CEO, executive creative director, and biz dev for my clients and and prospects. And it's probably equal thirds. It probably is. The sharpening that I've had to do and say, okay, are you really a great CEO if you're only doing it a third of the time? If that battery charge thing is in full swing, yes. Yeah, you're able to kind of go to a different space and and let some things mull over, get back to it. I'm in a place where I, I really do need to protect for myself and make sure I'm serving the company and clients and employees with this design. And so my team has said, you know, what's next? Or if you had to lose one of those three pieces of the pie chart, which would it be? And I've tried to answer, I probably answered in the moment. Well, that day, one of the three was frustrating me. So not that one. When I come back to it, it's like, no, they all are. I think we talked about it. It's kind of just a founder's condition. It would be very hard for me to say, as we talked about, I need to bring work in so that there's good design to do so that I can direct and grow a business and, and that cycle is going to continue. So it's kind of the only way I know how to do it. There may be some choices that need to be made in the next few years so that 
each seat has maximum impact. And I'd say today, that sounds like a fun challenge. Other days when I'm overwhelmed because all three need my full attention, that's certainly tough. And so we're dealing with it as a team, very personal thing as well, but I'm glad I have a group, five in executive leadership that work on that with me. I love that pie chart. And I think that'd be a good exercise for all of us to do. (laughs) Which hats are we wearing and how much time is going into each of them? Looking back over the last 30 years, you've been through ups and downs. You've you've had triumphs and and trials and, and everything in between. What would you do different or what would you tell yourself if you could go talk to that that 25-year-old starting a business in, in the mid-90s? Probably even take more risks, frankly. I have two competing thoughts in my mind. Let me finish on that one and I'll see if the other one still remains, is that it was audacious to go do your thing, right? So where does audacious stop? Like, and what is the thing? Let's not use abstract terms. Like, I think that I would go back with sort of the focus and intentionality that I've learned is necessary now and say, just really pound on younger Jim and say, an agency for what? Well, anything, anyone who's buying might really have been the answer because no, do some harder work, focus that intention and specialize more back then. I like that the story that you heard involves that there was actually some real good that came out of the diversity of the portfolio, but could we have gone further with a focus okay, that we're finding in more recent years? I think that's one. So dare to have your dream, but have people around you to really sharpen it, laser that dream up and be a little bit more specific. So that's being very honest in front of <laughs> a lot of people who might be listening to this. And the other is similar, and it's a little daring here too. The management of the dollars that makes a business run is Again, there too, not uh, maybe firsthand for a creative type. And it's risky. I would say um, the earlier Jim, I would tell him, however it is, find the rule book that already exists. I think I home grew the first 15 years with, I wouldn't say blinders on, but Scott, I didn't have you can tell even today, I don't have an abundance of time. I have to be very careful with which pie section I'm standing in that involves networking and being with peers and prospects and things like that. But I didn't carve out a ton of time to do those things earlier on. And it's part of the process. I was also raising a small family And so I could have done more of that or had others put us out there a little bit more in the community is one. The piece I want to say, though, too, I believe that rule book that I've craved would have, it's a realization I'm having now, is each of those hires was very intentional. I think they were great. I have people who are still with me. I have an employee of 29 years, and I have one of 22 years, and that's awesome. That's incredible. If I could have hired and acted more like the next stage of CI design earlier. And I think what that means is had more of a pulse to the roles that are required and some cases the pedigree of, let's say, an account 
executive, an account manager. We brought HR in way later than you'd think a company of our size. And I'd say, and get ahead of some of those things. Those are going to be necessary. Don't save any of this um, elevated positions that it takes to run a legit company too long. And it's hard to tell somebody who's trying to make payroll that they need more overhead. I would tell somebody that. Really, really carve out your leadership and get those people, seek them, get them on board if you're going to try to move something bigger. So those are my two things. You've used the word intentional or, or intentionality uh, several times, and I want to double down on that for just a second. Recently, I had dinner with the mentor of mine, and I was talking about some juxtapositions that we're kind of struggling with as, as a growing organization and which way to go. And I won't elaborate on that too much, but he said something to me that's just been ringing in my head since that car ride taking him back to his hotel. He said, whichever one it is, be intentional about it. Don't just let it happen to you. And I was like, wow, wow. That was really, really important for me to hear. So thank you for sharing about intentionality as well. Closing things down here. What's next? So good. We're certainly in it. My deck and it's participatory of the leadership. So it doesn't just go one way, but this deck I referred to with the kind of fall planning and vision time. What's next there is two words that I led that team with, and it's integrated and it's elevated. And I know a lot of people are using the elevated word a little loosely, a little too much, but for my company, CID, it means that I've essentially built in some regards for small agencies or departments. And it is the video, it's the brand, it's the marketing strategy, and it's this deep web development that we do. And we're building apps and and websites at a very high level with our own teams. And so to each of those, there's times to really not think about the separation of those. Some will have literally their own clientele, but to really look at um, how that whole offering moves a brand forward. And it doesn't mean that each client has to buy from each bucket. But the realm of possibilities to move their brand forward, if our message and the way we lead them to all that's next for them is integration of our services, you'd think, aren't you doing that already, Jim? Yes, we are. Just again, with a different way to bring that to market with more intentionality. And when we say the elevation of then all four of these quadrants and kind of picture the visual that I'm doing here with my hands, what does it mean to raise that up? And I think it's just a question for everybody is we're just saying, how can the experience for internal teammates and everyone that touches us, clients and prospects, feel that it's all for their what next? How can they experience that while they've come to us? Largely, I can think of a a really neat video program that we have going. How can they feel and know that we've looked at it actually from the brand corner? that we've come to them and offered to them strategic ideas wasn't part of what they signed up for perhaps, but like, how can we really holistically just bring more eyes and more thoughtfulness to each engagement? So those are the two things I'm doing. And as we said, we're going to be mindful of the trends and the tools that are out there. This is all along. If we can just offer more to our clients, it's panned out so far. I'm going to stick with that that the more we care and it shows outwardly, the more success we can expect. 
So I hope that that would be the case. It's what I know how to do until the market tells us something different. We'll, we'll go like that. Jim, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you, Scott. This has been a, a real privilege and great to get to know you too. Likewise. That was Jim Tor, founder, CEO, and creative director of CI Design Inc. To learn more, visit CIDesignInc.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us.